This episode is brought to you by Experian. Staying in shape isn't easy, except when it comes to your credit. Keep it strong with Experian Boost. It's the only way to raise your FICO score instantly and for free. And better credit scores can help you save money in lots of ways, like lower interest rates. Go to Experian.com boost or download the Experian app to get started. Results may vary. Visit Experian.com for details. Almost all states abide by almost all their international legal obligations almost all the time. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to The ER. Today, I'm in New York City with FP's deputy editor for the magazine, Sayward Darby. Joining us from D.C. is FP contributor Rosa Brooks, senior Future of War fellow at New America and professor at Georgetown University. And finally, joining us from Palo Alto is Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, where she focuses on military history. A quick thank you to everybody who submitted ideas to us. We've received loads and loads of great suggestions, admittedly because you want a mug and you like free stuff and not really because you care about intellectual discourse. But that's fine. It makes us feel as though you want us and you care about us and we're needy. So we're grateful. If you have any other ideas or questions or comments, you can certainly email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. Recently, from our tiny podcast studio high above DuPont Circle and another podcast studio high above cool and trendy Brooklyn, we had the following conversation. So, guys, I've just gotten back from China. In fact, I have to say I got back from China and Japan. It was pretty cool. Like I grabbed at a party at the embassy in Japan and a guy came up to me and he said, are you really David Rothkopf? And I was like, do I owe this guy money? <laughs> and, and, and he's like, I listen to the podcast every day on the way to work. Oh, my God. <laughs> wow. And, and I was like, we have 11 fans and one of them is in Japan. <laughs> it, was, it was really exciting. David, I thought you um, were going to say that somebody came up to you and smashed your iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, sure, Rosa. Yeah, that was a likely segue. <laughs> no, no, no. It, it's a very good segue. It's an excellent segue was, because that's what's happening in China, apparently. People are in a rage and they don't want to eat Kentucky Fried Chicken, which they shouldn't anyway. Right. Uh, but they're also smashing iPhones to protest uh, uh, the international court decision on the South China Sea. And they're very mad. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about that international yeah. court decision. Not really worth the paper it was printed on, was it? Because... No one's going to stand up to China, and China's going to do whatever it wants. And the precedent set by the U.S. and the Russians and others of ignoring the court is pretty clear. So basically, it's a lot of BS, isn't it, Corey? (laughs) No, it's actually um, not a lot of BS, even though I agree with you that we ought to enforce it, and I'm skeptical that the administration will. But there are a couple of reasons it's important. Um, And the first is that the international law can't actually prevent bad stuff from happening, but it does draw attention and pass a judgment that it's bad stuff that's happening. And and that's non-trivial because over time you create a sense of norms in the international order that govern everybody's behavior. The second thing... As that, you was, guys that was spoken know, exactly like an international law professor. 
Corey. <laughs> I was going to say the same thing. <laughs> it, it, I was going to say and it, it was, was beautiful. It was sadly, beautiful. That it was sadly nerdy. <laughs> sadly nerdy. I knew that was coming, David. (laughs) But it does actually matter to foster norms um, by compliance with the law. And I also think it's a good sign that even though the United States has shamefully not, uh, the Senate has not taken up for ratification the law of the sea treaty, and we should, that we are abiding by the the content of the treaty, even though we haven't ratified it. I think that, too, is a good norm to accept. And given the political tumult going on in the United States, the reassurance that even if our political processes aren't producing the concrete outcomes like treaty ratifications, that we still have the sense to abide by the content of the treaties, I think is actually reassuring. And the third reason I think the court's decision is important, even if it doesn't, um, even if the Chinese don't comply by it, is that they have been arguing that theirs is going to be a peaceful and law-abiding rise. And they have now shown that that's not true. And it will make it easier for countries like Vietnam, the Philippines, others in the region to cooperate with each other in addition to cooperating with us. Boy, let's 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 just deconstruct that. (laughs) Um, First of all, I'm so delighted we finally got to the law of the sea after all these many episodes, Um, although I do think it risks losing one of our 11 listeners. But Sayward, if this were really an important decision, would Corey have needed three kind of lame reasons to support it? Um, that's that's not a loaded question at all. Um, no, I mean, I was actually going to ask a question in response to what you said, Corey, because to answer your question first, David, I think that, you know, having multiple reasons why something is important um, doesn't necessarily mean that you're that you're reaching. I think it just means that the it's really important is a, is a complex one. Yeah. Um, so you think it's really important agreement. You agree with Corey? Well, I, well, yes, I do. But I also wanted to to ask Corey to elaborate a bit on um, the first reason that you gave um, the the international law professor answer. And I was wondering, you know, sort of in if you were to elaborate on that in in a tangible real life sense, you know, where do you see those norms developing um, over what course of time, you know, sort of in a practical sense? Because it does sound really nice on paper. It sounds great in a law book. Um, but, you know, what does that look like in the real world? Since we have an actual international law professor on the broadcast. Take it away. (laughs) (laughs) No, well, Corey already took all my good lines about norm creation. We like to talk about that. But but no, I mean, Corey is right. And it's sort of, you know, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it arcs towards the International Court of Justice at The Hague, right? Um, And and I think (laughs) uh, as Martin Luther King so famously said, um, yeah. Uh, you know, it, it takes away. famous way, I have a headache speech. <laughs> his famous I heart international norm speech. David, you're mixing up <laughs> yeah. the speeches. Right. Um, <laughs> no, it, I mean, I mean, does it does it immediately change China's behavior? Clearly and unfortunately, no. Does it give ammunition to all of the critics of Chinese behavior to chip away at it in a variety of different settings? Yes, it does. Does it give cover to the state's? And organizations that might want to back away from China 
but need some kind of face-saving way to do it? Well, yes, because now they can say, well, gee, we're so sorry. We absolutely wish we could, but oh, well, look at that court decision. You know, there's nothing, there's, there's nothing magic about it. The ICJ, the International Court of Justice, has no, has no army or police force to enforce its decisions. And I actually think that the United States is, is wise not to provoke any kind of military confrontation to try to, not only in addition to the fact that it would be rather hypocritical for us to uh, uh, identify ourselves as, as the enforcers of uh, international norms, given, as Corey said, that we, although we do abide by the principles behind the Law of the Sea Treaty, we are not ourselves part of it. And we have, we have certainly done more than our share of thumbing our noses at international uh, tribunals and other international uh, conventions, et cetera. But, but I think it absolutely matters. And I think we'll see it, it won't, we'll see over time. You know, it also gives internal reformers and internal critics within China a way to say, hey, you know, you guys overreached. We need to think of a different way to to show that we are an important and powerful country and so forth. So I think the reverberations, it's not going to be one big giant thing where suddenly, you know, the Chinese leadership goes, oh, my God, we're so sorry. We will dismantle everything we have, we have constructed. You know, we'll never do it again. But, but we, it, it will make a difference, I think, over the course of the next five to ten years that might be quite substantial. Okay. So let me tell you why you're all wrong. Okay. Uh, Go for it. And, and, and let me try to do this by— then we're gonna, Can uh, we take a vote of our 11 listeners at the end? About who's right? Yes. Absolutely. Let's uh, definitely, we'll go to the Twitter on this one. But um, Free mugs if you vote the right way. Yeah, exactly. And I decide who votes the right way. You know, I just just like to state for the record here that the mug sitting in front of me, David, says I'm one of the two listeners of FP's The ER. So we we are growing. Wow. No, no, we really really are growing. Um, Anyway, let me start with Sayward's analysis because she used two words that I think, refute everything else. And that was real and world, you know, because in the real world, all of this stuff about norm foster or fostering norms or whoever you were talking about is, you know, nice, but it doesn't actually change behavior. You're right. The United States has thumbed its nose. Russia's thumbed its nose. Nobody takes these, uh, these decisions seriously when it doesn't suit them. So, if you have a court that issues judgments that people only have the option of taking seriously, it's not really a court. It's more like kind of a bunch of kibitzers sitting around a table offering their opinions about what's going on. It's wrong, a little wrong, bit wrong, like wrong, Twitter. Wrong, wrong, well, wrong, wrong, okay, wrong, okay, 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 okay. <laughs> well, let me, okay, look, if you have a, it, well, you, okay, we'll allow you to come back. <laughs> but but the, 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 first, the first point is it's not going it's not it's not enforceable the people who want it to be enforced have ignored it in the past and so they don't have any moral standing the people who it ought to be influencing will not be influenced by it they will do what is in their national interest it's called the south china sea they think that's their backyard and they will behave within that backyard in a way that preserves their prerogatives and the prerogatives are to ensure that shipping lanes are available to them to ensure their viability as a country in a variety of different kinds of circumstances. They are the only ones who will go to war to protect that. If the United States uh, or anybody in the United States thinks that at some point the U.S. is going to go and send in warships over the Daoyu or Senkaku Islands or the Philippine island chain that's at stake here or the Spratly Island, forget it. It's not going to happen. We're, we, you know, we, we, we barely can go and send in troops against armies that want to 
kill us as their sort of central you know, reason for existence in the world. The Chinese are going to get to determine how this works out. And so all of this is kind of for show, and it's nice in the sense that it suggests that there is international law, though we haven't signed on to some of that international law and we don't follow the provisions of this court. But beyond that, it's window dressing. In fact, most of the time we do. And and if I if I can quote the famous two international law professors, late Columbia, I believe, law professor Lou Henkin, uh, who had a famous international law professor's line, he said, almost all states abide by almost all their international legal obligations almost all the time. You know, it's it's there there's this kind of faux realism that sort of says, oh, nonsense, states just do what they want to do. But most of the time on, you know, as Henkin said, on almost every issue, what states want to do and what is much easier for states to do is comply with their international legal obligations. That doesn't mean, you know, that means that some of the time, some of them don't comply with some of them. But 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 even for the United States, when you think of the, the big international court of justice decisions at which we have thumbed our noses, over time, we have generally moved towards compliance with them nevertheless. And the same is true for almost every other state that is not completely rogue. You know, And I think the same is going to be true with China. We have seen it in other dimensions. We have seen that international law and international arbitration has, however grudgingly and however slowly, nudged China towards behaving in quite different ways. And I think that's going to happen here, too. I mean, I, I, you know, that, that even the law of the sea is the perfect example. Yeah, we didn't ratify it. But we still abide by it because it's a whole lot easier to do so because otherwise we're arguing all the time with everybody else. You know, even things like the one of the most controversial for the U.S., International Court of Justice decisions uh, uh, some years back related to U.S. mining of the Nicaraguan harbor. Uh, and we got dinged by the ICJ and we, we, we went away in a huff and we, we insisted like China that we weren't going to accept its jurisdiction anymore because we were just so darn mad uh, and that we regarded as illegitimate, et cetera. But it gave ammunition to the critics of that policy and the policies changed. And, and, and you know, they change, in compli- they, they change in slow, complex and often indirect ways, but they do change. I was going to say something quite similar. I mean, I'm, I'm more acquainted. First of all, I'm a lay person. I'm not an international law professor, um, but I'm more acquainted with human rights law. And I think that, you know, there are a lot of arguments to say that, you know, human rights law, again, you know, uh, a national government might say, we're not interested in that. We don't have to do that. But the existence of it does give ammunition to critics, to activists, to people sort of lower down on the seeming power totem pole. And so the immediate impact seems to be not. But then there's sort of a groundswell that happens from the bottom up to affect change. Um, so, you know, the the long arc, if you will, kind of comes from a different direction than expected. And I, I think I do agree that that hopefully will be the case and um, certainly seems likely to be the case with China. Corey, do you want to offer another defense of this uh, lame argument? <laughs> <laughs> I actually don't think it's a lame argument, David. I think you are continuing to characterize it as lame, but you haven't refuted it. Well, I've refuted it. I've totally refuted it. <laughs> the U.S. doesn't follow these these decisions when we don't want to. The Russians don't follow these decisions when we don't want to. Rosa says that we think the Chinese will drift in this direction, but we have no evidence to suggest they will drift in this direction. We have plenty of Since evidence this from thing, prior Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. Now let me finish. You know, the Chinese <laughs> but you're still within, wrong. Well, I, that may be the case. That has never stopped me from finishing a point before. The, 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 the Chinese within moments of the issuing of this agreement 
produced a list of 60 countries that disagreed with it. The Chinese provided their own legal arguments why uh, this agreement is uh, not founded and why this court did not have the appropriate jurisdiction and why this hearing on this uh, was not conducted in the proper way. They, as you know, lawyers are wont to do, provided their own counterargument in a lawyerly way and in a global public opinion way that completely suggests that they're not going to listen to this. And furthermore, Vietnam, the Philippines, nor even Japan are going to go and stand up in a meaningful way to the Chinese. And at the end of the day, I'll take realpolitik over the law in cases where the law doesn't have any teeth and where history suggests that big powers don't follow the law. Now, so Rosa, give us that evidence. <laughs> I agree with David's point that very often strong powers don't follow the law. But I actually think the Chinese reaction proves Rosa's case about the arc and the norm. Because so the Chinese were so worried about a toothless court's verdict that they produced a list of 60 countries that they said supported them. Um, that means they, were, they are actually worried about the court's verdict influencing other states' behavior. The second thing, the funny thing about that list of 60 is the number of countries who have said that they're actually not supporting the Chinese. That In fact, only eight countries have have acknowledge that they're supporting the Chinese on this. And they are all countries that are recipients or hopeful recipients of uh, China's largesse. And other than Afghanistan, they are all landlocked African countries. Yeah. And I think, um, okay, I think, this well, is... that, I don't, I don't think we should discriminate against African countries. I believe they're capable. She's discriminating against them because they're landlocked. Judges. It landlocked exactly, <laughs> um, but 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 I think this is short term versus long term to some extent. You know, it's not going to transform China's behavior in the next two or three years. But I think that the question, you know, the question, real politic often wins in the near term. But I think the question is over five to ten years. Does this contribute to a shift in complicated ways? And I think the answer to that, you know, there's ample reason to think that over time there is a drift in the direction of consensus-based norms, and the the International Court of Justice does have a powerful powerful authority over many powerful states, which do abide by its decisions even when they don't like them. And I think that is going to cause that drift over time. So we have to reconvene okay, so, in a decade for a reunion okay. ER well, we'll and, and see what's we'll happening. We'll certainly be here. We'll and have so 20 we'll, listeners by then. By, thank you. <laughs> we'll have 20 listeners by then. Uh, and by then they'll be able enough to drive. I, I, I think it's certainly a subject <laughs> worthy of discussion. And I think that this has been a, a, a good, lively discussion about it. I guess I would wrap it up before we move on to the subject by saying that in the geopolitical world, like in the world of physics, there are strong forces and weak forces. And I think this uh, kind of court decision falls more into the uh, area of weak forces uh, than strong forces. But we'll see. And that whole arc of history argument is certainly one to keep an eye on. Um, now, the other thing that happened in China is that I would talk to sort of leading Chinese experts. And, you know, usually we talk about, you know, who's up and who's down in the Politburo and that kind of thing. And all they wanted to do was talk about Trump. And I was like, OK, well, you know fine, we'll explain the Trump phenomenon and and so forth, and I'll defend it. And they, they had a completely different attitude than I expected. Their attitude was, you know, a lot of experts here in China think Trump would be a good thing. And I was like, well, wait, wait, wait a minute. 
he's like saying all these awful things about China. Why would he be a good thing? He has no foreign policy experience. Why would it be a good thing? He's a maniac. Why would it be a good thing? And they were like, well, first of all, he's a Republican and Republicans tend to be better for China than Democrats. And I was like, oh, um, well, you know that there's no Republican foreign policy expert that's actually supporting Trump. They were like, hmm, well, this is one of our views. And then they said, we don't like Hillary Clinton, you know, because Hillary Clinton's been very tough on human rights since the, you know, speech she gave at the women's conference in Beijing when she was first lady. And she's tough on these human rights issues and she's an irritant, um, by the way, I think in ways that probably would make her popular with the American people. And I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. And then I started talking to people in the street and other people about this. And their view was Chinese like Trump. And I was like, why do the Chinese people like Trump? And they said, because he's rich. And they said, and rich is a metric that Chinese understand. If you're rich, you're successful. If you're successful, that means you're good at what you do. If I were Chinese, I would love Trump. <laughs> no, I mean, for all, the, for all the reasons that you just said, if I were Chinese, I would think, here's the United States. There, there are our friend and our rival and our, you know, they're our frenemy. And open, any kind of open conflict would be catastrophic and costly. But things that cause them confusion, that cause them to blunder, that distract them, that generally screw them up are good for us. And now they're doing it to themselves. How, how perfect. You know, if they elect Trump president, we can just sit back and watch them screw up around the world for another four years. How great is that? Are they not at all, David, concerned that he does seem a bit, shall we say, trigger happy? Well, I don't think they feel he's trigger happy with them, that he might be on trade issues. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, I think the Chinese are pretty pragmatic that they live behind this shield of economic interdependence. The Japanese and the U.S., can we can talk all we want, but our economies are so intertwined with theirs. This is not the zero-sum world of the Cold War, and they know it. Corey, what do you think of this peculiar Chinese reaction? <laughs> So a couple of things. Uh, first, before the Chinese uh, feel too comfortable behind the shield of economic interdependence, they ought to read up on World War One and the state of economic interdependence right on the eve of that disastrous war, because I don't think it's determinative in the way it sounds like uh, they are thinking it is determinative. The second thing, though, is that I'm not at all surprised that a China that looks on American power with resentment, and especially because the way the United States succeeds in the world isn't simply our power, which the Chinese can emulate, but it's the ideals that we stand for and the way we draw allies around us. The, the great news of the conflict over the South China Sea is that China had, by its assertiveness and its militarism and its disrespect for any other country's interests in the South China Sea, China has, as Secretary of Defense Ash Carter mentioned, isolated itself in the region and reinforced America's alliance relationships. And so if, if in fact, China feels like it can counter American power and American richness, but it can't counter America's likability, America's magnetism because of soft power. Donald Trump is the perfect antidote to that um, America because he is recklessly destroying it every place he turns. Well, first of all, China isolating itself in the neighborhood is a little bit like the sun isolating itself in the solar system. In other words, you know, the Chinese can behave in a variety of different ways. There is no country in Asia that 
can ignore the presence of China or there is no country in Asia that is not completely dependent on the goodwill of China in the long run. Um, and that's just, you know, I think that's just something they factor into this. But it does get to another point, uh, which I'd like to sort of conclude our discussion here with. And that is the f- next president of the United States is going to come in. China will continue to rise And they're going to look at the international system, as we've talked about in past podcasts, and they're going to say, is there even an architecture in the Pacific? You know, what how do we counterbalance China? What what kind of strategy do we develop with regard to China? You know, counterbalancing, uh, pivoting, those kind of things are very, very generic. There's no real security architecture and really hasn't been one uh, of note since the 1960s. And so, you know, my sense is that the, the, the first the, one of the first things the president is going to have to do is sort of look at this and start finding, a, 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 you know, kind of a structure in what exists right now. My, my own view is that that starts with redefining this part of the world as the Indo-Pacific region rather than the Asia-Pacific region because you can't counterbalance China without India and that you need something like a quartet, possibly a quintet of major powers who are working together um, uh, on a regular basis uh, with an eye towards not containing China again, but counterbalancing her. And that would be India, Australia, Japan, the U.S., and possibly Korea. So that's, that's how I posit an evolving structure. But you guys may have other ideas. I think your point about redefining Asia as the Indo-Pacific is hugely advantageous to American interests and also to the interests of other countries in the region that want to counterbalance a China that isn't playing team sports and isn't respecting the rights and interests of others in the region. No, I, I agree with you. <laughs> and and I, I agree with you, too, on this one. Um, I, I, I think that despite the much vaunted and, and much questioned uh, pivot or rebalancing to Asia of the Obama administration, that in some ways, this administration never really developed a theory of the case for, for thinking about Asia. Um, in some ways, they did. They tried. And and, and to be fair, they, they had a lot of very real and significant distractors uh, that kept popping up every time they, they really tried to. But but I, I think you're right. I mean, I think that I think that really thinking through not only what are we trying to achieve here in the long run and, and how do we do it, and, and particularly particularly doing a better job of of leveraging the many, many common interests that the U.S. and India have is going to be crucial to that. Say a word. I would echo exactly what everyone has said. We can uh, all agree on this point. I very much agree with what Rosa just said about how there's sort of been almost like a lack of, of, of a theory, of, a, of an idea of what, you know, this this area of policy for the United States should look like. Um, I think the question is, as you mentioned, um, distractors, Rosa, um, you know, for the next president, what distract, what other distractors will come up? What other distractions will be there? Um, same ones that we see now. Will they worsen? Will there be others? And, you know, does that kick the can down the road to a certain extent in terms of redefining this uh, relationship and architecture? And Trump, God knows what will happen, obviously. But but right. I, I actually think that that Clinton, you know, although I've been very critical of her in some ways, I, I think on this issue, she is actually somewhat more likely to say this is an absolute priority and we can't let it just keep getting pushed aside. So so I, I have I have some optimism that if she is the person who is elected, 
uh, that this will change. I think that's true. I think the Clinton team, by the way, is much more steep in Asia Pacific and China issues uh, than the second term Obama team has been. Than the well, I mean, there is no Trump team. Although I think, judging from the performance, what are you the talking about? Sons his and kids, daughters. right? Exactly. His kids like him, which is 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 sweet. But uh, in in any event, I you know it's going to come up. I think it's going to come up, by the way, in a changing context. It was clear to me in conversations with some in Japan that we're only a few years away from a Japan that really normalizes its stance militarily and says we are going to be able to project force as we need to and finally moves out of the constraints of the post-World War II era. Um, and so I think that's going to be a big factor uh, in all of this as well. Um any any last comments on China and Asia here from any of you? One last from me. China is going to wish it had actually behaved in a way that drew other countries' support when Japan makes those choices that you described, David. I think it may ultimately change China's behavior. But it's quite interesting. When you speak to people in China, you know, their regular go-to wag-the-dog response is, if things are slowing down in China, let's blame the Japanese. And when you speak to people in the Japanese government, particularly around Abe and that group, their regular go-to wag-the-dog response is, let's blame the Chinese. And I think that for the next decade, the tension that really infuses this vital relationship is going to be a bigger issue in international affairs than we have seen it recently uh, and something to keep an eye on. Well, you know, we've come to the end of another one of these lively discussions here. I do want to reiterate that any of you who have ideas for what we should be talking about, uh, and this idea, talking about China and South China Sea, was one of the ideas we've gotten from our listeners, send them in, write us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com, tweet them at us. You'll get a mug possibly a mug that isn't broken, although we have seen that a number of the mugs have gotten broken. We'll replace them. Uh, you'll get to feel part of this growing family that still could fit in a large phone booth. Uh, and, and, and we'll be happy to have your ideas and that sense of community that's so heartwarming. In any event, I want to thank Sayward. I want to thank Rosa. I want to thank Corey. I want to thank all of you for listening. And I'd like you to Come back soon for another lively discussion here on the ER. You have been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe to this and our Global Thinkers podcast, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.